I thought it would be fun. You know, there's so many things about Roxanne Conlon that most, I would assume on this call, know the bullet points of her resume. You know that she's been breaking barriers and glass ceilings since she attended Drake University Law School, which was a rarity back in the day. It's always fun to talk to young women today who, who have no clue what it was like in the 60s to be a woman and be in law school or be in any kind of, at that point, non-traditional career. They can't, they can't imagine why there would be any kind of discrimination, but you have lived that in so many ways. You've been a mentor to so many of us and uh, a beacon of hope. And for me personally, you have been a dear friend and someone I've called upon in some of my darkest hours for which I am exceedingly grateful. There's one thing about you that I have yet to see in most interviews, uh, be they television or print. Rarely does your sense of humor come shining through. <laughs> I'm, when I'm on TV or, or doing an interview, I'm not usually in a position to say funny things. You know, I'm being interviewed about a case or a tragedy or something like that. So my my uh, ability to joke is substantially limited when I'm doing those kinds of things. But well, you, I do love to laugh. You are hereby liberated from all of those <laughs> constraints. You have a major birthday coming up next year. I do. I don't think anybody cares what outrageous thing you say on this potluck call or in the uh, podcast that will be created as a result of it. So I have one question for you that I'd like to ask to kind of set the tone for this conversation. All right. And that is why in the hell would you jump out of a perfectly good airplane? It was on my bucket list. I had never done it before. Some of you may have done the same thing that I did. Confined to my home as I was for a year and a half, I made a bucket list and it included skydiving. And uh, so, and I'm a determined person. So I'm just going down my bucket list. I, I also did a hot air balloon. I rode on a motorcycle. Many of you have probably done that before, but I had not. Um, I went to the Galapagos Islands. Uh, I did a lot of things that I have thought about doing and never done. I, I figured now is the time. And I said to my family, if I die, I will have had a good life. You know, <laughs> what, what was that like? I mean, that is the one oh, thing. Great fun. Connie did it too. I think Connie's on here and she I did it. Know. She had the good judgment to make it into a fundraiser and I did not, but we're going to do it. She and I are going to do it again and we'll make it into a fundraiser for some good cause. Connie Weimer, are you really going to do that? Jump out of a perfectly good airplane? You already did. You already did? Yes. Oh my God. No, Connie did? Connie? I did it for um, Above and Beyond Cancer about, I don't know, a month ago. Oh, oh my God. And his great. Do you have pictures? Do you have pictures of it? Oh, tons of pictures, yeah. Oh my God, would you please send me some? Of <laughs> I love it. Well, both of you have been mentors of mine and, and women all across the state, of course, but also the country. Roxanne was actually the uh, 
president of the American Trial Lawyers Association. And what what time frame was that? Do you recall? 1992. You would have thought that some woman would have been the president before me, but you would be wrong. Yeah. But there were many, there have been many, many women presidents after me, for which I am very proud and grateful. So let's just, for the sake of people who might not know you and are listening to the podcast, what are some of the barriers you've broken personally? Well, when I went to law school, there were three women in our class. And we were ranked one, two, and three, which gives you an idea of how hard it was to get into law school for a woman. Um, uh, When I got out of law school, the first case that I had was in small claims court. And I went to court innocently to represent a railroad. I'm not going to say what railroad, but um, I I went to represent a railroad in some very tiny, I think it was about $49 or $50. And the judge refused to believe that I was a lawyer. He said, Frank Davis, who was the senior partner in the law firm I was with, would never send a secretary over to represent this railroad. And I kept saying, I'm I'm an attorney, I'm an attorney. And he went back into his chambers and called my senior partner. And so from that point on, I carried my graduation and my bar card right with me so that I did not have to face that again. I faced lots of other things like that. And I'm guessing that many of you have too, um, the 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 fact is that women were discriminated against in almost all aspects of life for a very long time. I became the president of the Iowa Women's Political Caucus in 1972, and we had a huge long list of things that we needed to do because the laws were very biased against women. Here's the one that I found the most remarkable. You as a woman, you could be jailed, imprisoned for longer than men could be for the very same crime. And I am not kidding about that. And I I determined that the reason for that was probably because women weren't supposed to commit crimes and anybody who did, any woman who did was obviously way off the map and should stay in prison until she was rehabilitated, no matter how long it took. So that was one of the things that we were able to change, as well as a number of others in that 1973 legislative session, which was a big one uh, for the Iowa Women's Political Caucus. And we and a number of women ran who were um, members of the caucus or endorsed by the caucus. Some men were endorsed by the caucus. And uh, I think it was 17 who ran and 16 who won. Uh, I think many of them would have won whether we'd been there or not. But one that I'm particularly familiar with and also very proud of is a woman named Ruth Harkin, who ran for county attorney in Story County. She was six months out of law school and she didn't have a job. (laughs) So she was encouraged to to run and we sent people up there to knock on doors and she won. And then we said, oh God, what we do? But (laughs) but she was a very good county attorney. And some of you may remember this. She took her babies to, to, to the office with her. And that's something that I have always encouraged the people who work in my office to do. We've had a lot of babies in the office. Um, I think that's probably enough of a, a background. I Since that time, you know, I have, uh, I, I, I was the first woman to run for governor on a major party ticket. I lost. 
Um, and then I ran against Charles Grassley, lost that one too. And I'm I'm done with running for office at this point. I'm looking around and some of you should do that because I'm not doing it again. <laughs> What's it like to run for office? I mean, what are people- In 1982, it was the most fun I ever had, Julie. It was, it was really great. I mean, I, I was out, I was meeting people. We had, you know, we, uh, I, I, get, I get, get the giggles about the presidential candidates who are doing like four events a day. We did 12 events a day. We did, we did a seven o'clock uh, plant opening. Um, we did uh, a 10, 10 events during the day. And then we did a, an 11 o'clock or a midnight plant for the 11 to seven group. I was there at their plant gate. In any event, it was so much fun. It was more of a cause than a campaign. We did not have any money. We were outspent four to one. Um, and and it just was a, 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 a the, the highest highs and the lowest lows. I, I really loved it. Polly Lipsman told me when I said I would run against Grassley that I would hate it, uh, that it was so changed in 2010 from 1982 that that I would not like it and she was absolutely right I did I hated it all I did was uh, sit in my basement and make calls for money and it was really I'm sorry it was really um not any fun at all I had to beg to be let out of the basement um so I don't can you hear that phone ringing no you're oh, good, good. You're good. It's in my hearing aid, so I can hear it. Oh, but okay. okay. In any event, I, I really did not like the 2010 campaign at all. And one of the things that happened was Grassley went home in July and never came out. So I did not have a chance to interact with him. There was no debate um, in 1982. I had three, three debates. Um, and it just wasn't any fun. So now it's changed so dramatically the way that people seek office and the way that people do office is very different. You know, I, I hadn't thought about talking about how campaigns are funding in this call because there's so many things I do want to ask you about. But since you've been on the front lines with your name on the ballot, what needs to change? Well, we need, I think that we, uh, Citizens United was what I see, do you all see this as a marker? Citizens yes. United allowing unlimited campaign uh, money, um, making campaign money speech has destroyed any illusion that we had that this was a fair fight. It's not a fair fight. Maybe it's never been a fair fight, but certainly now when we have um, multimillionaires and billionaires running their own campaigns on behalf of candidates. It's not, it, it's not, not good for democracy. There are a lot of things I think that are not good for democracy, but that's got to be at the top of the list. Did you ever think in your day you would see the kind of uh, grift that's taken place in the United States Supreme Court with Clarence Thomas? No, no of course not, of course not. It's, it's inconceivable to me. It's just inconceivable to me that that a United States Supreme Court justice would think that doing uh, 
luxury vacations and yacht trips and Lord knows what else on somebody else's dime. And the somebody else was a somebody else who had cases in which he was interested before the court. It just, it's just inconceivable to me. And I think that there needs to be change. We, we have learned uh, in the last several years that the guardrails that we thought were there are not really there that it's a norm, not a law. It's a norm, not a rule. And if there's somebody who's willing to break those norms, we're helpless. There's nothing we can do about it. So I think that there, the, the Supreme Court, uh, based on public pressure, is going to have to come up with a code of ethics, and they will have to be bound by it. I always thought that at some point, one of the presidential candidates you backed through the years would appoint you to the Supreme Court <laughs> I never wanted to be on the Supreme Court. I have a side. I am not neutral. I have a side. <laughs> I well, did I, one thing that I that I did in some must have been in the 70s or so. And and no woman had ever served as a district court judge ever. And the reason when I would complain about it, which I did at every turn, I was told, well, there are no qualified women who who apply. And so I applied and prayed that I would not get it. And I did not. But they, I did make it into the top few and uh, and then was not was not appointed. But uh, we've now we've now had a number of women judges and justices of the Supreme Court. But, you know, we went for some time without any women on our Supreme Court. Yeah, so true. Um we have uh, about 45 minutes on this call together. I can ask you a million questions, but is there anything that you would like to say that hasn't been said about either you or politics or dancing or, <laughs> uh, you know, cats and dogs? I mean, there's so many aspects to your passions and the things that you care about but not everything gets reported or covered. Is there anything that you wish somebody would ask you? Uh, I'm sure that I have been asked every single question that I could ever be asked at some point or another, but I want to make a little pitch for an organization called the Castle Club. Have any of you ever heard of it? No. Okay. It is more than a hundred years old and it is a ballroom dance club. <laughs> that is losing members. I really thought dancing with the stars would increase the number of people who wanted to dance and learn to dance, but that has not happened. So the the, the Castle Club uh, meets four times a year now. It used to meet every single month and they had a uh, meet it, met at the, it was what was then the Des Moines Club uh, uh, and, and with tails and gowns and an orchestra, but now it's much more casual because there are so few people who are involved. So if any of you are ballroom dancers, that's something that you should know about. Oh, one other thing. Uh, the Animal Rescue League of Iowa and every single one of the shelters, including the no-kill shelters, needs foster parents for kittens and for puppies. If you have an extra room in your house and the capacity to love baby animals, then this is for you. How did you get interested in that cause? In 1998, I really, I, I've always loved kittens. I have a picture of myself when I'm four years old with my pigtail sitting on my grandmother's uh, porch with kittens everywhere. My grandmother 
South Dakota farm woman to her, cats and kittens were livestock. They had a job to do, keep the rats and the mice out of the corn cribs. That's what they were supposed to do. No kittens in the house ever until I started bringing kittens in the house all the time. But I have always loved baby animals, dogs, cats, any kind of animal. I have always loved them. And in 1998, um, uh, I, I just needed kittens in my life. And so I called and suggested I might take some into my home. I might have been, that's 25 years ago. I might have been one of the first foster parents that mm. the Animal Rescue League ever had. And since that time, I've had more than 2,000 kittens. 2,000. Wow. So for those who haven't had the privilege of touring your home and seeing your cat room, <laughs> would you please would you please describe it for those who are on the well, call? There, I have two. I have two, two cameras. My house. One that was built in and it's upstairs. It has it's a good sized room. It has a it has a big TV in it, has a couch for James. Um and uh it has cat things like a cat tree and cat toys and that sort of thing. And now we have one downstairs that used to be the dog room. Uh the dogs are gone, and so that is also now a kitten room and has exactly the same things. Big TV, um a place for James to sit, and lots of cat things. So, so these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of things your campaign managers never wanted the public to know about you. That well, you strange <laughs> cat. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but but I think it's it's a fascinating aspect to your personality. And when, why did you? What drove you to want to care for these these animals? I mean, what was it about besides your grandmother? Well, my grandmother would never have approved of me having kittens in my house ever. But um, I don't know. Some people love animals, and some people do not. Uh, my whole family is in the category of people who love animals. We've always had, when the children were growing up, when I was growing up, we always had dogs. Um, we did not have cats until uh, we lived out in the country on what's, I think it's Southwest McKinley now. And, and so people would, cats would show up, you know, on our front porch, cats would show up. We would take them in. And so that's how we, that's how I got involved with, with cats. Okay. Well, I'm going to open it up here for those of you on the call who have a question or a comment. Uh, I'd love to have your participation in this call. In the meantime, uh, Lowell Norland uh, posted a comment in the chat saying he has a picture from your 1982 campaign that he'd like to show you. I would like to see it. All right. And Diane Gibson is on the call. She knew you from the Women's Political Caucus. She was chair. Hey, Diane. Chair Hi. Johnson County in 1972, and oh. she has a button from your campaign. Do you have a question or a comment, Diane? Nope. Oh, I'm going to try. What? Oh, okay. All right. I am the governor of Johnson County <laughs> and also the senator. <laughs> yes. And, and all of the positions held therein. Okay. So I don't see any hands raised. That, that surprised me. Come on, Barry, you had a question or a comment and Chuck Offenberger's on the call. We've got a bunch of people on here that I'll bet you would like to, oh, there's Reka. Reka's gonna have a question, I'm sure. Yep, yeah, go ahead. But you're muted. I'm muted. Okay. Hi, Roxanne. Hi, everybody. 
So Roxanne, you have taken so many important cases representing women in particular, and I've sat in court and heard some of your arguments and you have a, an amazing record of winning them um, to the betterment of all women. Um, my question is, is it sometimes difficult for you to choose which cases to take? I'm sure most of them that come to you have a great deal of merit, but do you, what, what calculations do you have to go through because you have so many? competing for your time and attention? Is it those you think you can win or is it those that will have the most broader impact for women? What goes on through your head in making those decisions? Good question. I am, yeah, it is a good question. And the answer is I take the cases that I love. I take the cases uh, for people who need justice. I take the cases that appeal to me. I'm in a position when I can do that because I have hundreds of cases offered to me um, all the time. So I, so I just, um, my, we have a way of doing this. Uh, staff people return the call, give me a memo. And the reason for that is because if I didn't do that. I'd have 500 cases. If you've got a good story, you've got a lawyer. That's how, that's kind of my motto. Um, but it is, um, it is important to me to advance the law. With our current Supreme Court, that's no longer possible. I'm trying to hang on to some of the advances that we have made over the years. Part of my legacy was the Godfrey case in which we established for the first time in 170 years that the Iowa Constitution uh, provided for a remedy and damages to any individuals whose rights have been trampled on by the government. The current Iowa Supreme Court uh, decided that 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 right no longer existed. Uh, it was only in force and effect for three or four years, and then they this court took over. and 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 I, what what bothers me about that, besides the fact that it took away what I consider to be my legacy and something that I'd worked on for twenty years, is we're not that's not supposed to happen. You know, that's the the Supreme Court is supposed to be apolitical. It is not supposed to respond to uh, issues in a way that is political. And yet we lost the right to choose health care. We lost the right to to sue in damages when the when the police beat us up. Um, we we've lost a number of rights in the in the Supreme Court, and I can't I can't go there to develop the law anymore. So now I'm doing what I call <laughs> I I take I take more cases than I should, and I take them through the first part of the Iowa Civil Rights Commission, and then we mediate them and try to get them resolved. I take some cases still. Um, I've got the I'm a co-counsel, local counsel in the ag gag case, for example, that I think are very important for lots, you know, for lots of reasons. And so, um, but generally speaking, um, if if you call my office and you have a case, someone will talk to you. Sometimes it takes a while for us to get back to people. Right now, we I'm told we have 41 cases, 41 calls pending, which drives me pretty crazy. Um, but because I know that it takes a lot for people to call a lawyer. So we're going to try to get those wrapped up this week. But but when when the, when the memos come to me, I read them and make a decision. If I can't take the case, I try to refer the case to somebody else. But I'm done. I'm done with law development. We can't do it anymore. We are blocked by the United States Supreme Court and the Iowa Supreme Court.
And that's very that's sad. I'm, I'm, not, about I'm not said. live in either of them. The, what you said about the Supreme Court and the courts supposed to be impartial, what changes, I mean, let's say under a different governor, under a different legislature, what kinds of changes could take Iowa's court selection or judicial selection process back to being less political? Well, than- what happened, you know, some of you may recall this, the, the governor took over the selection committees just by one vote, but one vote is enough. And so that's that's what's happened. And so we should return to the to the way it was before, which was n- n- political uh, party. Uh, there was no political party favored by our our selection process is the model for the nation. And then she changed it. It's not the model for the nation anymore. And the results are. When I go to the Supreme Court, which I'm hoping never to do again, it would be seven to zero against my clients. Could a new governor change it back? No. No? Uh, It's an appointment. Oh, could a new governor change the law? Yes. Could a new governor appoint new Supreme Court cases? Really not so much. And I also would not favor, I've been asked about this, I don't favor defeating these individuals in, uh, in in the referendum that comes, I think every eight years or thereabouts. I don't I don't favor that. That makes that makes them even more political. What do you think has happened to Iowa? You know, Rick and I had that have had that podcast where we've talked about what the hell happened to Iowa. What do you think has happened to Iowa? I don't know, but it is not for me. It's not the Iowa that I grew up in. Uh, it's not. It's not then it's not Iowa nice. It's Iowa cruel. Um, it, it, we are we are so divided, and you know I attribute it uh, I, I attribute it to Fox News and Trump. Mm-hmm. That might be simplistic, but golly, you know I I think it, you don't have to go back very far, maybe twenty fifteen um, to 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 realize that Iowa, uh, we have always been neighborly. We've always cared about others. And now we're now we're not that. We're just not that anymore. Breaks my heart. Do you see new leaders coming up in the, not, not just the women's movement, but in the progressive causes that you work for? Do you, do you see the torch being passed what happens when Roxanne Conlon no longer takes cases? Who takes those cases? Oh, listen, we're trying. I have one of the missions of my law firm is training young lawyers. And so I take from Drake Law School, I take six law clerks a year. Mm-hmm. And I teach them what I know. Uh, they draft they draft complaints for the Iowa Civil Rights Commission. They draft petitions. They answer interrogatories. They sit in on depositions and mediations. And they go to court with me. I don't know what I'd do without them in court because I need about six people with me in court at all times. Um, but I, I'm hoping and I'm, I'm I'm thinking they're spread out now across the state and across the country, all these women that I have had. And I've had men too. Right now I've got more men than women, but usually it's pretty evenly developed. And many people of color. And I think that they will make a difference. These these young people and uh, others that I know and that you know, Julie, and you know, Rekha, and you know, Connie, um, they will make a difference 
they'll be able, I'm, I'm hopeful in my heart of hearts that we return. Uh, I, I hate to feel like an old fogey, but we need, we need to return to who we as islands used to be not so long ago. I have a question for you. I was thinking driving yesterday that I'd love to ask you, and I've never done so. It's a little personal, but... God forbid <laughs> that Julie Gavick would ask me a personal question. <laughs> Unimaginable. Unimaginable. <laughs> um, but you are one of the smartest people I've ever met. Thank you. But, but it's just a fact. But sometimes I wonder if that's lonely. Is it lonely to be you? Sometimes, um, but not uh, not usually. I have a I have a spouse. I have four children and five grandchildren. I have people at my office. I have um, after the election for governor uh, was the loneliest period of my life because I felt embarrassed. I felt dejected. I felt. Uh, I, I felt um, like I had been rejected. I know James said that I was so sad because hundreds of thousands of people said no to me at the same time. And usually no one says no to me. That's what he says. But but uh, I, I you've touched on something that I'm really worried about, and that is loneliness. And that is what we do in this post-COVID world. I have like probably many of you, I've got family and friends and stuff to do and places to go. And and I think there are lots of people in our neighborhoods and in our state and city that don't have that. And I don't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. Well, it is, it is a definitely a topic that is permeating discussions all around the country right now. Hillary Clinton wrote an amazing right. piece for what what magazine was it? The, the Atlantic? Uh, Reka, do you remember what the name of the? Yeah, it was the Atlantic. Um, something I hadn't really thought about before, but there certainly are periods of my life where loneliness has just been paralyzing. And I can't imagine what that is like when you age and you don't have the ability yeah. to, to go do a lot of the things that you used to be able to do. All right, we do have some questions. Laura Bellin, you're first, then Barry, then Artis. Laura? Hi, Laura. Did I see a big dog? <laughs> a little dog. He's oh, a little guy. About he looks big. 19 he looks or big 20 pounds. <laughs> I want to go back. We've talked about this before, and I've always been meaning to write something about this, your policy of letting employees bring babies to work. Because oh, I love that. You know, a lot of people don't know, but in my non-blog life, I'm a volunteer leader of a parenting support group. And I just know how important that kind of support is and how few employers do allow that. And I remember that you told me, my memory is that you said, basically they can bring the baby to work until the baby can walk. Then it, that's when it becomes disruptive. Yeah, it can, it can become disruptive though. Uh, they're still welcome to bring the baby now and then. I'm just afraid they're going to stick their fingers in the, in the right. sockets and stuff like that. But I mean, that saves just thousands and thousands on daycare. But how can you describe, first of all, the logistics of how your office handles that? Like, let's say somebody has a client meeting or something and they're, they've got their baby. And also, I mean, what would be the way to get more employers on board with allowing that to happen? Because I feel like a lot of people in white collar occupations could do that, but I hardly ever have heard of anybody other than you allowing that. 
That's really true. And it has been something that we have allowed since the very beginning. Uh, Michael Gallagher and I were partners and we had a woman who was pregnant with, it turns out, twins. And she was uh, encouraged to bring her babies to the office. Keep in mind that uh, those bonding hours that women need with their babies can't happen if they're one place and their baby's another place. And so our our model is bring your baby and we will help take take if your baby cries, you can pass them to us. You know, we babies are not any trouble. We did have one baby who had colic. And that was that was difficult. I will say that's difficult, but we just we we passed him hand to hand. Um, we gave that mother with that colicky baby uh, some relief from that. And it doesn't, colic doesn't last very long. I had one lawyer who had three babies while she worked for me and she became very adept at nursing and typing or being on the phone at the same time. You can adjust. And it's very important for the future of the nation that we raise fearless feminist babies of both genders. And so that's my goal. And that's why, why bring them to me. We will help you. <laughs> You know, Rex, why do you think other law firms, why don't other law firms do this or other? I have no idea, Laura. I have been talking about this. I have participated in articles about this. There's an organization about this. And it just seems like tradition, if you can call it that, being hidebound, being uh, afraid that babies will disrupt things. And, and honestly, they will, but in a good way. I, you know, Roxanne, you have been sort of a, a mentor for so many of us in all kinds of ways as women, in, including encouraging women to have children, because there was a time when a lot of us who were grappling with career before we had babies, thinking that maybe we shouldn't if we wanted to be taken seriously in the in the workplace. Um, from that end of the spectrum to it's okay to wear lipstick and have your fingernails done. I mean, there were so many ways that, <laughs> yes, exactly, that you sort of made things make sense as a feminist. Um, I don't know. I just want to thank you for that because there was a time period when we would wear little bow ties. Remember that? Never. Ne I never, I never wore a, a bow tie. Did you wore? A, did you wear a bow tie, I, Julie? Yes, I oh. did. I'm so sorry. In fact, <laughs> when Hillstar's son died, there there was a memorial service, and there were six of us in a row, all of us showing up, and we happened to have blouses on with bow ties. I could not believe it, but I digress. <laughs> and we do have a question on the call from Barry Pyatt, and then hey, Barry. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for all that you've done over the years. Uh, your service to Iowa, to women, to people uh, has really been remarkable. And thank I want to say thank you for that. The question I have is, uh, when I think about it, sometimes, you know, I, I mean, not literally, but, uh, but metaphorically, I want to cry uh, when I think about the fact that Terry Branstad beat you, uh, Chuck Grassley beat you, Chuck Grassley beat uh, Admiral Franken. Uh, and I, you know, I think, well, I can certainly say in my view, uh, none of those people won that election because they were the better qualified candidate. Uh, and my question is, what have you noticed over the years and in your own campaigns 
that is different about the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in Iowa institutionally that might contribute to those outcomes? I think that as uh, Democrats, we are the party of hope. We are the party of happy. We are not the party of fear and uh, putting other people down. And I think that there is a part of the human soul that is um, uh, lit up by fear. Uh, so I'm, I would like to make people fearless. Uh, and my friend Connie Weimer has a whole group about fearless women, and I think that's exactly what we need to do. We, Democrats do know how to win elections, and it's person to person. It's one uh, person at a time. We just haven't always done that as well as we could. In my own race for governor, I had literally thousands and thousands of volunteers. It was almost an entirely volunteer effort because we did not have any money. But, but uh, and you know, we came pretty close, but I think that I'm not sure that we can do that anymore. Uh, so far, we're not doing very well. All three branches of Iowa government are controlled by Republicans. And we are going backwards as fast as we can in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of healthcare. Uh, it is not, um, we have to turn it around. Diane Gibson has a question that I'd like you to answer after we after we call on artists, but be thinking about this too. She, she wants to know if you take environmental cases, water related, and this will be an opportunity for you to talk about that. Artists, go ahead. You're muted. So there we go. Hi, Hi Diane. Thanks for you? being here. Um, as others before me, I want to thank you too for your excellence in your practice of law, for your advocacy always focused on the rights of the clients and for your support and encouragement uh, to me personally, to other women attorneys, other women judges. Um, it's just been invaluable to many more people than you probably can imagine. Thank then you. I have a little plug for those of you who are attorneys, and I know there are some attorneys here, uh, the mock trial season is coming up. And volunteers are needed uh, at the end of this month for the middle school mock trial tournament. Uh, judges are needed. You're on a three-judge panel, so it's not all up to you. And it's very fun to watch the middle schoolers. There are hundreds of them throughout the state who have worked so hard to learn about the law. The third thing is, Roxanne, do you have advice for a young woman who's maybe in high school, with thinking maybe law sounds good, what advice would you give to her? Uh, well, obviously, if she thinks she should be a lawyer, she should be a lawyer. Um, she should educate herself on what lawyers do, because lawyers do a lot of different things. When I went to law school, I did not know the difference between civil and criminal law. I didn't know the difference between a plaintiff and a defendant. I I didn't even know a lawyer. I just knew I wanted to be one. Um, and mostly because I wanted to be a trial lawyer. My, my sophomore homeroom nun, Sister Mary Katrine, uh, I, my plan was to go to Hollywood and be a movie star. 
And <laughs> she was pretty appalled by that. And so she said, she's the one who suggested I be a lawyer. She said, you can use your brain and your flair for the dramatic. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And there were times in law school when I cursed her name. You know, she obviously had no idea what I would face when I went to law school. She was a nun. So, so, uh, but we, we, she, she, she made a commercial for me when I ran uh, in 1982 for governor. But, but I, uh, don't. Here's my advice to young women: whatever you want to be, whatever you want to do, be it, do it. Don't let anybody stand in your way. Don't let anybody discourage you. And if you need encouragement, call me. Thank there you. Go. There you go. Are there more and more women coming into the practice of law? There are so many, there, there are uh, law schools, including the University of Iowa, that have 50% women, but I have to tell you that's illusory. Um, there are still barriers to women in the law, as there are to women everywhere in everything. And so we shouldn't fool ourselves that the fact that there are 50% women in law school means that we are that we have reached nirvana, because we clearly have not. I hear from women, I hear from women lawyers who are being sexually harassed by the senior partners in their law firms. Still, I hear from women lawyers who are being sexually harassed by judges. Um, so really not, not nirvana. Certainly we, we've almost reached critical mass in terms of practicing lawyers, but um, I think there will still be barriers. There will still be barriers, but that, that's why we need women uh, to do what they wanna do to go any into those, law or politics any, or whatever. Any of those women being harassed by judges, would they talk to a reporter? No. Yeah, okay. And I and I wouldn't let them. Yeah, okay. All right, let's see. Bob Riley, you have a question. Hey, Bob. Go ahead, unmute and ask away, if you would, please. Where'd you go? He's right there. I can see him, you but he's still him. on mute. Hey, Bob, you're still on mute. There you go. I'm sorry. I had to take a call. Um, I was just wondering about that candidate selection issues, messaging, funding. We seem to have problems in all of those areas on the the, the, uh, Democratic front. And I just wondered, I know they're all important, but which one should we concentrate on the most? Oh, don't make me decide that. I'm not the one to do it. Um, I think that every office is important. Uh, obviously, I would like I would like nothing better than to see a change in in governor in Iowa. Uh, I would like nothing better now than to have, you know, we have four Congress people who are Republicans. It used to be you know, two and two or two and three. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, choose your, you know, I think everybody on this on this call probably does politics to a greater or lesser degree. So choose your candidate uh, based on who you think will add the most to the political culture of Iowa and then devote your time and effort to that person or to those people. You know, one of the things that I do, as many of you know, is I I am often called upon to provide fundraisers and Bob Riley can walk right over. <laughs> he just, he's my neighbor. Uh, anyway, so, so I do, I, and, and all of you should do the same. Choose candidates that will add the most to the political culture in Iowa and then support them with all that you've got. 
you could wave a magic wand, who would you like to see run for governor? Well, I think that that I don't I I've not heard for sure, but we have one statewide elected official, the state auditor, and I'm pretty sure he's planning on running. He's a very gifted politician, a very lovely human being. Um, I think he'd make a great governor. Um, I don't know that there's anybody else standing in line at this point, but if but I'm I'm open to considering. But you know we've got until 2026. How about congressional races in the state? Do you have a wish list of who you'd like to see run? Well, you know I've always liked to see women run and people of color, and um, and there may be a woman who's a person of color, a woman of color who runs for Congress in the third district. I'm not at liberty to say who at this moment, she's just considering it. Okay. And there is, and there may be a, um, uh, a man, also a person of color who, who will yeah. be in the third district. Okay. Well, that's intriguing. Yeah. Um, so somebody asked about your cases involving water quality and ag related issues. Do you want to speak to that? Yes. Um, we had this great idea. Uh, public Justice is an organization with which I'm associated that brings cases in the public interest. And we, uh, the Iowa Constitution, Iowa law says that people are entitled to waterways, uh, navigable waterways to use for, for uh, commerce, uh, for bathing, swimming, boating. I mean, it's right there. And so we brought a we brought a cause of action uh, against I can't remember what I think it was the Raccoon River, you know the the rivers are in just terrible shape and and we're going to soon be in a position where we won't be able to swim we won't be able to boat we won't be able to go near rivers because they'll stink, um, so we brought this cause of action and took it all the way to the Supreme Court and lost. So I was a I was a co-counsel local counsel on that as I mentioned the ag gag. So people call me up periodically who have an interest in these kinds of things and ask if we would be willing to sign on to read the briefs to make sure that they comport with Iowa rules and regulations. And I'm always happy to do that and, and welcome the opportunity to participate in cases like that. And water quality and animal and animal care are both things I have a lot of interest in. And of course, women's health care I have a lot of interest in as well. You made a, a comment in your answer to Reka's question about the cases you take on going forward. And you said something about you have to love the case or love the cause. What in the world caused you to take on Microsoft? Well, um, my my son's best friend <laughs> called me about a different kind of antitrust thing. And at that moment in time, there was some press about Microsoft at the federal level. Microsoft was under attack for being an, a monopoly and, and behaving badly. And, and so I couldn't take, I couldn't have him at all with the case that he brought to me. But then he said to me, but, but what about this Microsoft deal? And so I started looking into it and he was the, he was the first client. He was the client for whom I brought this giant Microsoft case. And I have to tell you, I've told other people this, they don't believe me, but truly, I thought, gosh, you know, 
this must be worth as much as a hundred thousand dollars. I was serious about that. That's really what I thought. And so I brought the case. We lost on a motion to dismiss, took it to the Supreme Court, won it in the Supreme Court. And then lawyers from all over the country started calling me up because they wanted to co-counsel with me on this case because apparently it was worth more than a hundred thousand dollars. And I and I selected my co-counsel on the basis of having I did not want to get involved with any law firm for whom the goal would be to resolve the case. That was not what I wanted to do at all. And so I, uh, I, 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 I partnered with a law firm that, that I knew would not do that. And I knew that from some of the other things that they had done. And so we worked together on, on the Iowa case, but also we worked together on the Minnesota case. I went up to Minnesota to choose the jury and ended up staying for eight weeks until that case was resolved. The Iowa Microsoft case resulted in two times the amount of money per capita than any other case brought against Microsoft for antitrust violations. And the Iowa case was the only case in which Microsoft paid actual cash money. Uh, other cases were settled for vouchers. And I said at the very beginning, I do not take coupons. And so we went to trial. We tried the case for three months. I thought I was going to die from it. Uh, it really was a very complicated, difficult case. And uh, the, the, the general counsel of Microsoft and I settled the case at Perkins on a Sunday afternoon. And I had a chocolate malt. And I don't remember what he had. You remember what the judgment was? Yes, we settled the case for a total of $255 million, $180 million for the people of Iowa, and $75 million in attorney's fees and costs. Wow. Wow. It was more than 100. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It really was. How did that change <laughs> your life? <laughs> How did that change your life? I mean, that's well, real. One of the ways it changed my life is people keep asking me to sue Microsoft or other, and Google and other. Uh, monopolies. I have. I don't think I ever want to do that again. Um, I like to be able to meet my clients. I like to be able to know that I'm making a difference in their lives. And um, big class actions, mass torts, you just don't get that feeling. You just don't. You know, that's there's a there's certainly if if your goal is to make a lot of money, that would be how you would do it. But that is not my goal. How else did it change your life? What? The the Microsoft case. Well, the, it made me famous. I'm thinking about the money. I mean, <laughs> the money. I bought a house. No, I had this house. Actually, now that I think of it, I had this house before the case went to trial. But certainly it has given me much more freedom. Mostly I give it away, as you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that hard? I mean, is no. it hard? No. No. Give no it away. My favorite thing. <laughs> I love it. We yeah, but I mean, yeah. there's so much need in the world. How do you how do you decide what to what to support and oh, that's, that's difficult, Julie. That is difficult. But there are other people who do the same thing as I do, and I make you know I make choices on the basis of who I think will do where I think it will do the most good. As you as many of you are aware, we we have a number of low income apartment buildings, and so we focus a little bit. Uh, uh, James and I are both focused. Um, in our in our philanthropy on meeting basic needs, uh, food, clothing, housing, 
um, and education. And so I will tell you some of the things that we're involved in. Our, uh, many of the people who live in our units are migrants. They do not know English. We offer, and where's my sister-in-law, Judy? Uh, at Judy's, Judy was the head of the international system when we started the international center. And we started offering ESL classes on premises with childcare. Um, we have a, we have, we had a, a feeding program for a long time. People, um, you know, what do you call salvaged food from from a come and go would come to our buildings and JV bought big refrigerators to keep it in. That was very popular. So we try to do as much as we can to meet people's basic needs. Um, but then, uh, you know, uh, I'm a I'm a supporter of the ballet. I don't know why. I did not know that. Well. And I did not expect to be, though I never, you know, one of the things I regret is I never had dance lessons when I was a little girl. And so it might have something to do with that. But I am a supporter of the ballet and other things people ask me for. And sometimes I provide money and sometimes I'm not in a position to do that. But I love to be able to have uh, resources to, to, meet, to meet people's needs. Well, here's another personal question, and, and that revolves around most people who know you know you had a tough childhood, an abusive and alcoholic father, and that was a big piece of why you've been a champion for women who are involved in domestic abuse situations. And I guess the personal question, Roxanne, is have you sorted all that out in your own mind? Are you at peace? Are you at this stage of life? Have you... Uh, I don't know what the right word is, but but I know it was such a driver for you. Is it settled? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think that it has driven me in good directions. It has driven me to become a champion for the victims and the survivors of domestic violence. It has driven me and my family to provide scholarships, the only scholarships available in the country to the survivors of domestic violence. It has driven me, my first case as Rekha pointed out in an article she did about it was against my dad. And it has, um, you know, he's been gone for a long time. And you would think it would be over, but it, it PTSD, which is um, a chronic ailment, uh, you you can put it behind you. You cannot think about it. You can move forward, but then every every, every now and then it comes up again. It's up. You, you brought it up again right now. It I'm almost sorry. brings me to tears. And no one has hit me for I don't know, sixty plus years. Well, I I am sorry that it it triggered you. I I also am so grateful for you to talking about it openly because. Your experience is not something that is uh, in a vacuum. There are it's not at all unique. One yeah. time I said, I once one time I said to somebody, everybody's dad was a violent alcoholic because it, sometimes it seems to me as though that you know that that seems to be a common a common thing, and it's not a good thing. Children in those situations, as my as the six of us, my six, my five siblings and I were, uh, they they uh, they take it away with them. But one of the things about my family is we have enormously successful people in my family, and I have to 
I, I want, there should be another way to get enormously successful people in your family besides beating them up. But that, that has happened. You know, my brother founded Great Clips. My sister was the CEO of Great Clips for many, many years. My, my, uh, I have another sister who was head of the Nurses Association. I mean, we have really driven people in my family. Well, and for that, we are all grateful. I certainly am. And I love you. And I thank I you so you. much for being with us today. And thanks to everybody on the call. And uh, Roxanne Conlon, any final words to the group? Thank you all for, for listening to me babble. <laughs> and thank you for being present. And thank you. I, I see in this group of people, many who have made significant contributions. Nick Johnson, I see here. Mm -hmm. Some of you may remember uh, Nick uh, taught at the University of Iowa, and some of us remember when he was the was at the FCC that you were the the a board member for, and you rode your bicycle uh, on Washington streets, and you didn't die from it. So we're all glad of that. <laughs> yes, and Marsha Turnus is on the call. I, yeah, Marcia, I can't see Marsha, but Marsha, her, her video is off anyway. Okay. We all appreciate you so much, Roxanne, and I certainly do for having you on this call. Thank you. Thank you for asking me, Julie. Thank you. Thanks, Roxanne.